Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Scripture is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 and 12 through 18. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, letters of combination to you or from you? You are our letters, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, with the Spirit of the living God, not on, but with the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then jumping to verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for today. Lord, we ask you to open our hearts, open our minds. Speak to Pastor Jeremy as bring forth the word. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's a little loud. Elam, can you turn me down just a little bit? Happy Mother's Day, everyone. You're welcome. Yes, happy Mother's Day to everyone here. Uh, both, now, now remember, we, we're talking about the implications of the gospel, right? One of the major implications of the gospel is that you are not just a mother spirit, or physically, uh, but you are a mother uh, first and foremost spiritually. Um, as, as soon as you put your hope in Jesus Christ, uh, you become a spiritual mother to those whom you're discipling. And if you are not discipling someone, you should be, you need to be discipling with someone. So we celebrate, yes, we celebrate physical Mother's Day, uh, but lots of times on Mother's Day, you know, there's that underlying hurt among some, you know, those who haven't had children, can't have children. Um, but you know, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us, rejoice, O barren woman. How could that be? We know how painful that is. How, how could God tell us to rejoice? But it's because greater are your spiritual children, the children that you will bear for his kingdom. Focus solely on that. Greater is that than the seed that you're planting just on this earth. So happy Mother's Day to you moms out there, but happy spiritual Mother's Day to all of you spiritual moms out there, uh, to those children you are bringing up, whether it's spiritual or physical, uh, we recognize what you do and we appreciate it. Keep at the good work, right? Amen? It may seem impossible at times, but we keep at it. So we are continuing our implications series today. Uh, this is going to sound a little bit like a broken record. Uh, tell me if you've heard me say this before, but I love this scripture passage. Have you heard me say that before? Yes, it comes out a lot, doesn't it? 
But seriously, this is one of my favorites. God put this uh, 2 Corinthians 3 on my heart a couple years ago, and it impacted me so much. Uh, it, was, it was just a life-changing verse uh, in how I viewed how I go about my life. Um, you know, what, what I'm doing here on this earth. And so uh, it, is, it is really important. But I'll be honest, as I really dug into uh, this sermon for this week, this teaching, we're going to be covering three chapters today. Now, I did that because it's Mother's Day, and I wanted to give moms a lot of time in here without their kids from Kids Church. And so we're going to try to cover three chapters of 2 Corinthians in one day. That should take forever, right? Uh, but I do want to encourage you, so we're going about this a little bit different. Usually I go into like a real in-depth breakdown of like one little chunk of scripture or, or a, a chapter of scripture. This time we're looking at, as a whole. We're looking at these themes that Paul's bringing to us. So I really want to encourage you guys, when you get home, read these chapters for yourself. Um, I would hope that you do that anyway. But there's a lot of information in here, and I'm not going to cover anywhere near all of it thankfully for you, right? Because you all have Mother's Day celebrations you'd like to get away and go to. Um, but, but I'm just covering just a sliver of what the Word of God actually gives us. So when you get home, break down these chapters on your own and see what God has to say to you. Uh, because there is way, way, way too much good stuff to fit into a 30 or 45-minute message. So go home and see what God has to say to you. Today, we're pulling this theme out of these three chapters, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. We are looking at the implication of the gospel that has to do with gospel confidence. Uh, you know, one of my favorite passages of scripture is here, but another one, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. Paul gives us just a snapshot of what gospel confidence is, and it's absolutely incredible. He says this, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Now, Paul uses these real big words, right? He gets kind of fancy. You know, lots of times people look at Paul. You either love Paul or you hate him, right? You either look at him and you're kind of like, man, Paul's kind of a pompous jerk. Like, he comes across as this, like, highfalutin, fancy-pants guy. Like, who's he think he is? But then there's other passages from Paul where he's the humblest man on the planet, right? He's like, guys, I'm not above anything. I will, I will do, I'll wash toilets, I'll do, I'll do whatever it takes to get this gospel advanced. And you look at him and you're like, how in the world does that work? And Paul gives us a glimpse of it here, right? What's Paul saying? Now, it's interesting because in the Greek, he's using like legal terminology. This is, he's, he's talking about being in a courtroom. So when he says examine, you know, I don't care if anybody examines me, he's talking like legally here. So, so what Paul's saying is, look, guys, I don't care what you think about me. Sorry, and that's where we get, what a jerk, right? That's kind of pompous. But then he takes a step back, and he says, I don't even care what I think about myself. And we're like, whoa, hold on a second. Queen Elsa taught us in Frozen that the only thing that matters is what you think about yourself, right? And that's what our modern culture teaches today, right? It's all what you think about yourself. So whereas more traditional cultures, older cultures, you know, they tend to be like, it's, it's all about what society says, it's your family, it's, it's that. But then modern culture says it's all about you, it's what you think. Paul says, uh-uh, it's neither of those things. I'm stepping out of this entirely. I'm not even getting into the argument because God is the one who examines me and that's the only opinion I care about. That is gospel confidence. And when we get that right, when we get that right, this is the rub. This rub of Paul, is he a jerk or is he humble? Which one is it? Neither. Both. I don't know. Right? Because he's not on the map. He's not on this. I've, I've taught on this passage before. You know, Tim Keller has a really great book. I've, I've always suggested I have a bunch of extra copies just to give to people, but it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And the whole sermon, he breaks down this passage. He does it way better than I ever could. So I would highly suggest, if you haven't read it yet, that you would get that book and take a look because it teaches us how to get off this map of, of 
confidence. How do we get out of it? And we have to. See, this is a really trendy topic today when we talk about confidence, because ultimately confidence is derived from what? Self-worth, right? From value. And this is a super, super popular topic in our culture today. But we have to be so very careful, because there are a lot of Christian voices out there. People who would label, if you go to the self-help section in the bookstore, it's Christian self-help, right? And these Christian voices, these Christian counselors are writing things that are anchored far more in the things of the world, far more in the things of our current culture than they are in the gospel. So we have Christians seeking counsel from Christian counselors, and these counselors are giving them things that don't line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So... We have Christians that are buying it, right? Hook, line, and sinker. They take it all in. Well, this is a Christian counselor. Of course they're giving me Christian advice. But ladies and gentlemen, not all Christian advice is created equal. It should be, but it isn't. Because not all Christian advice applies the implications of the gospel. And when we're talking about self-worth, and when we're talking about confidence, we have to anchor it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is one facet of all of our life that we must apply the implications of the gospel. So how do we do that? Thankfully, Paul shows us. To find the implications of the gospel on our confidence, we look at what Paul tells us about the source of confidence. We look at how the gospel defines success so that we can find our confidence. And then lastly, we look at the hope that anchors our confidence. Because if we drop the right anchor, your confidence will be unshakable. And that's what we want, right? That's what this world is so desperate for, a confidence that is unshakable. Because when you look around, it doesn't take long, on social media, just scroll a little bit. You see people with shaky confidence. They act like they're real confident in their decisions, right? But half the time they post stuff on social media is because they're trying to justify the decision they just made, right? They're looking for that edification. Tell me I made the right choice. Tell me, give me likes, give me likes. Give me the huggy face button, right? Tell me that I'm right. Give me that confidence. But if we have gospel confidence, we can say like Paul, I don't care if you give me the huggy face button on Facebook, right? I don't even care if I give myself the hug. That always irks me, you know? Sorry, this is social media peeve. People who like their own posts on social media, if you do that, just stop it, <laughs> please. That doesn't have anything to do with gospel confidence, but it's just a public service announcement. So let's start. The source of our confidence. What does the gospel give us as the source of our confidence? And are we truly living that way? Because here's the deal, y'all. We know the answer to this question. We know the answer to all of these questions, right? But are we living this way? The fact of the matter is there are two main sources in which we can find our confidence. And Paul talks about them in these three chapters. He starts with this kind of weird place. We get this in, in this chapter 3 here. We read a little bit about it today, and then there was a big chunk of it I cut out because I wanted to give you some context. And so I'm going to give you that context right here. But Paul is referencing something that happened in the Old Testament. And if we're not real familiar with that story, it's kind of a weird passage. Even if we are familiar with the story, it's kind of a weird passage. So let's look at this. This is what Paul says. This is what wasn't included in the reading from today. He says, But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Right after this, Paul gives us the passage that Kurt read today about Moses and veils and faces glowing and all that stuff. 
And so if you aren't familiar, this is kind of what's going on. In Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35, if you want to check it out when you get home, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. This is part two of the tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? He gets the first part, one of the tablets, comes down, Israel's sacrificing to idols. He busts them, throws them, and so he kind of ruined that. Then he goes back up the mountain, stays there another 40 days and 40 nights, gets these new tablets, and he comes down. And this is so cool. Moses comes down, and he is so intimate. He is so near the presence of God that Moses' face is literally glowing. Now look, I wasn't there, so I don't really know what that looks like. I don't know if it's like a lightning bug, you know, kind of thing. What's going on? But he comes down and his face is glowing. Wouldn't that be pretty sweet? I'd be able to tell how many of y'all spend time praying and seeking God throughout the week. Hey, your face isn't glowing. Get in that prayer closet. Do some more, right? I'm glad that doesn't happen. Talk about accountability, right? There's no way to hide that. But his face would glow when he came down. Anytime he met with the Lord, he'd come out of the tent of meeting and his face would glow. And so, you know, there's some of us here today, we're thinking like, dude, that's pretty sweet. And then there's other of us who are like, that's not sweet at all, that's just weird. That's kind of how Israel felt. They're like, Moses, your face is kind of weirding us out, right? Why the face, Moses? So Moses put a veil over his face to cover that glory so he wouldn't freak people out. What Paul is showing us here, though, is this. The ministry of death, that's the Ten Commandments, right? Came with glory. Which means the way of the flesh, the the old way of doing things, came with glory. So much so that Moses' face lit up. He reflected that glory. But we have the ministry of life right? We have the Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen. So many times we look at the Old Testament and we're like, oh man, that's so cool. I wish my face would light up. You've got something so much better than Moses had. Moses wishes he was living right now. Well, he is living, you know, God causes all things to live. But Moses wishes he was here right now because if his face lit up when he had the Old Testament, How much more would it light up when he has the Spirit? Because here's the thing, y'all. The Old Testament, the law, it cannot lead you into life. It can't. That's why it's called the ministry of death, right? All it is is a list of rules. And we've covered this with the gospel, right? You can't do it. This list of rules, you can't do it. You can't. But, the gospel says, but... Jesus did, and he gave you this new ministry, this ministry of life, this power of the Holy Spirit. So if I'm walking in the Spirit, guess what? I don't even really need to know what the rules are. Now, should you still study the law and prophets? Should you know that? Yes, because Jesus says to, right? But I don't need to know what they are because the Spirit leads me in life, right? He leads me in life. But herein lies the problem. Because even though we have this ministry of life, this Holy Spirit, we get so infatuated with the things of this world. And we choose rather to stay in the ministry of death, the law, obeying rules. Right? Because there's a little bit, when it's rule following, I still have control. Right? Paul says this in, verse, or in chapter 5. He says, For we know that the, if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. I shared this verse this week. It was from our Bible in a year plan, uh, posted on Facebook. But 1 Chronicles 12, 18 really, really hit me this week. But it starts and it says, The Spirit 
covered Amasai like clothing. Paul says something similar in Romans 13. He tells us that we are to be clothed with Christ, right? So let me ask you something. When you look at your life, what do your clothes look like? Are you clothed more by the things of this world? Or are you clothed more by the things of the Spirit? Because our problem, especially when it comes to confidence, is that we cling way too much to the things of this world. We let them define our success. Paul goes on just a few verses later. He says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now look, we love running to certain verses in the Bible, don't we, Christian? This verse 17 is a popular one, especially among Pentecostals, Charismatics, whatever you want to call yourself. It's a big one. We love it, right? Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is, or the new has come, the old is gone, right? And we love that. Yet we only apply it to spiritual things. Where in the Bible does it say, hey, all of this stuff you see in here only do with spiritual stuff. Leave the rest of it, you know, the rest of life you do on your own. But this is just for, for spiritual things. It doesn't say that. Yet we've got fleets and armadas of Christians whose numbers are like the sands of the seashore, to jump into Old Testament term terminology, who act that way with the Bible. Well, that's good spiritual advice. It's good everything advice, y'all. So when the old is gone and the new has come, we got to do it all that way, right? We recognize no one by the flesh, only through the Spirit. You know, this happened just this week, but uh, Jana was talking to me about a, a Facebook friend she has, so an acquaintance that she has on Facebook. Um, and the person, so, so like, you know, you have like living for Jesus, and then you have like almost to where you're like deliberately trying to do everything you can to not live for Jesus, right? And so this Facebook friend is on that spectrum, like everything she can to, to deliberately not do that. But G Jana was telling me about this post she shared about how Christians need to stop opening coffee houses and start opening laundromats. Because poor people don't need coffee houses. You know, they, they need laundromats. So why don't we meet people where their actual needs are? And I said, man, Jana, you got to message her. And you got to say, I know you don't believe any of this stuff, but I see Jesus in you. Can I ask you a question? Because Christians are known a lot for coming at people and saying, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, why do you do this, this is wrong, this is wrong. Christians are known a lot for that, right? How do you think somebody would respond? Put yourself in those shoes. How would you respond? You've got one Christian coming to you saying, don't do this, you need to do this, this should be illegal, don't do that. And then you've got another one who comes at you and saying, man, I know you don't believe this yet, but I see so much Jesus in you. When you talk about this, did you know that Jesus says the same thing? I see so much Jesus in you. And I think if you chase that with me, I think he could do something really special. But we ignore this command from Paul. We ignore what he says, because what does he say? We recognize no one by the flesh. It doesn't say we don't recognize our spiritual brothers by the flesh anymore, right? Because if you're a Christian, you can screw up all you want. You can do all the bad stuff and it doesn't matter. No. That's how we act though, right? It says only if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. But it says to you that we recognize no one according to the flesh. So why don't we do it? The gospel of Jesus Christ has to be the lens with which we view and interact with everyone, believer and unbeliever. We have got to change this. Because if we do, this literally changes everything. Your identity is no longer in the flesh. Listen, do you hear that? 
your identity is no longer in the flesh. That means it's no longer in anything of this world. Nothing. Now look, there's so, and, and, and this is, this is, it depends on where you're at in the spectrum. There's two struggles here. All right, number one, we struggle giving up our sin nature, right? It's hard. And some of us, we really don't like it. There's an addiction we have, there's something that's broken, and we don't like it, but we've begun to identify so much with that brokenness that we don't want to let it go, right? We, we identify so much with that unforgiveness that we don't want to let it go. But Jesus is asking you to lay it down at his feet. He's saying, stop. Stop being identified by the flesh. But there's another side of this that we really don't like. This is, this is the part I think a lot of us really struggle with, especially when I look at the world today. It's all of our successes on this earth are also the flesh. That's also this world. And we really don't want to give those up, right? Because a lot of times, you know, we, we know we're going to cast our crowns on Jesus. Yes, but Jesus, let me win an M NFL MVP first so that I can cast that crown, Right? And we look at all these athletes who put Philippians 4.13 on their socks and, you know, all of this stuff and this glory for Jesus and there's this. But that's what our church, the lowercase c church, the American church, that's the culture that we've raised up. You can't be an effective witness for Jesus unless you're famous. So get a bigger platform, right? Then think of the things you could do through him. But is that according to the Spirit? Or is that according to the flesh? Because God wants it all. See, I think at, at the bottom of all of this, if we really want to break it down, if, if some of these celebrities and everything, even us, if we're being really, really honest, I want success so I get the glory. Right? God, make me successful, and then I'll give you the glory. What? What? <laughs> I didn't say that right? Because if we're being really honest, we don't even want to give God a little of the glory. We'll give him the humble brag glory. <laughs> All glory to God. He, he got me here. But you can smell false humility from a mile away, right? But the gospel redefines this. The gospel says this cannot be how we go through our life. Because ultimately, the gospel redefines how we even measure success. If we are to live out the implications of the gospel, we cannot measure success by worldly means. Did you hear that? If we are to live out the implications of the gospel, we cannot measure success by worldly means. Yet that's where all too many churches go right? And, and, and again, like individually, we got to fix this. We have to. But guys, if the church isn't leading the way in it, how does anybody else stand a chance, right? If the church is leading in the wrong direction, how does anybody else stand a chance? But if you go to any church conference, talk to any pastor of any church, the first thing that always comes up amongst church people is what? How many people are in your church? What are your numbers? How big is it? I get asked that question all the time at the Gospel House, right? Anytime I talk to somebody, the question they always ask, are you guys growing in numbers? I don't care. And I've actually decided I'm going to stop being polite about it. Because most of the time I, I give like a polite answer. Oh yeah, you know, we're, we're doing fine. I, I don't really count, but I think we're doing pretty good. And I'm just going to start telling them, I don't care. I don't count because I don't care. We just read this in our Bible in a year plan, right? There's a famous story in the Old Testament when King David takes a census. He counts up his people. He wants to know how many people he has. It doesn't end well for him, <laughs> right? God sends a plague. He says, David, I didn't tell you to count anybody. What are you doing trusting in the number of people you have? When I was your hope, I was your trust. But yet, that's the question we ask. How does God measure success? 
And how are we supposed to measure success if we're applying the implications of the gospel? And to figure that out, first we have to look, what's our purpose, right? Because you can't measure success if you don't know what your purpose is. Thankfully, Paul tells us. It says, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we always have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be re- recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So what is our purpose? What does God say? See, our problem today is that we have decided to define success the world's way, right? And so you go to these churches, and you go to these leadership conferences, and you go to all of this stuff, and they tell you, you cannot be successful if you don't have your own vision, if you don't have a mission statement, if you don't have core values, if you don't have SMART goals, right? Specific, measurable, attainable redundant. I don't know what they are. I gave up on those. You'll see why. But you know, goals, we got to have clear goals. You have to have these things or you cannot be successful. Says who? Jesus or the world? Yeah. Gospel believing Christian. Says who? Jesus or the world? Look at verse 9. What's Paul say? He says that this is our ambition, to be pleasing to him. Guys, what is your goal? To be pleasing to God, right? Westminster Catechism, go back old school, right? The Westminster Catechism tells us what is the chief end of man. What's our purpose? Why are we here? To worship God. God and to glory in him. Right? We want to make our Father proud. We want to be pleasing to him. Unfortunately, the church today rarely seems to have this kind of ambition. We've got a whole bunch of worldly ambition. We want to raise up leaders. We want to, we want to, you know, be these powerhouse people and have all of this power and success in the world's eyes numbers, but God's sole purpose for us is that we would be pleasing to him. And how do we do that? Thankfully, Paul tells us eight verses later. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The ministry of reconciliation Why are you here? Why did God call you out of darkness? Because he's given you this ministry of reconciliation. He has asked you to beg on behalf of him, others to be reconciled to him. Did you catch that? Beg others. Oh, but Christian... We are too proud to beg, aren't we? Aren't we? Now, we've got to be careful. We talked about this last week. We're not peddlers of God, right? When I say we beg others to be reconciled to God, we don't change the gospel, right? The gospel never changes. Jesus' message never changes. But we beg 
It's not about making the gospel more popular. It's not about making God more popular. It's not about making us more popular. Right? Look at what Paul says in ver- or at chapter 4, verses 13 and 15. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Why do we preach the gospel? Why do we preach it? Because we believe it. Right? And can I challenge you on something? Can the Holy Spirit challenge you on something? If you aren't preaching the gospel, if you aren't telling others about Jesus, and when we preach the gospel, we don't just do it in word, right? We do it in word and deed. Are you showing people Jesus in your actions? Are you talking about Jesus when you interact with individuals? If you're not, why aren't you? And what Paul's saying right here, you don't believe what you say. You say that you believe in Jesus. You say that you believe that he resurrected from the dead. You say that you believe that he's going to do the same for you if you will live for him. You don't believe it. Because there is a world of difference between intellectually knowing something and having it down deep in the core of who you are so that it changes the way that you live. Right? Right? Right. That's an aside, though. We beg others to be reconciled to God. This is one of the most enormous implications of the gospel. And it's what Paul is saying right here. Verse 15, it starts out this way. For all things are for your sakes. How do we beg people? That's how. Everything I do is for your sake. This isn't the first time Paul says something like this. It's not the last time. You go through any of Paul's letters, over and over and over again, Paul says, I become everything to everyone so that I might win some. Even if I, this is one of my favorites, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I will rejoice. I love that imagery, right? God, I will pour myself out for these people. People, I will pour myself out for you that you might be reconciled to God. I give everything in my power. I am begging you over and over. This is what Paul says. I will do anything so that you will be reconciled to God. But more important, over and over, this is what Paul does. Right? He doesn't just talk about being poured out. He pours himself out for the church. He pours himself out for the unbelievers. He becomes a servant for them. To win one. Are we doing the same? Jumping out of 2 Corinthians, real quick, we're going to look at what Paul says. This is a such a good passage of scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says this, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Ladies and gentlemen, put this verse up on your walls at home. Memorize it. Make this a core verse of your family because this is how the gospel of Jesus Christ demands we measure success. Not the way the world does, but when the gospel comes, it demands that it comes with your life. Do you know why there aren't more unbelievers turning to the gospel of Jesus Christ right now? Because we have Christians who are not pleased to offer their own lives with it as well. We have Christians who are happy just preaching the gospel, but my life is my life. You don't get that. Church, gospel house church, if we 
myself included, because I need to do better at this as well. If we preach the gospel in word and deed, and we, imp- or, and we share our own lives as well, with every person we share the gospel with, y- you're going to bat a thousand. There's, there's no telling what God's going to do through us, right? But this is the way the gospel demands we go about it. It's a high cost, right? To share your life with every person you preach the gospel to. But the reason for this is, is this is how God measures success. He doesn't measure success by masses, right? By having thousands and thousands of people. That's not how he measures success. Gospel success is always relational. It's always relational. Look at what Paul says. We read this, uh, Kurt read this to us. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written on our hearts known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The gospel message of Jesus Christ always bears relational fruit. This is how God measures his disciples. This is how he measures success. The world... The flesh does letters of recommendation, right? Resumes, cover letters, you do the whole shindig, you know what I'm saying? We've all been there applying for jobs, right? That's how the world does it. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel says, this is my letter. You, everybody, you all sitting here right now, watching online, wherever you find yourself today, you're my letter, written on my heart. You are my letter. If somebody wants to know, how successful are you doing, Jeremy? I'm going to tell them, come meet the people at the gospel house. They're either doing what I say or they're not. They're either growing in the Lord or they're not. And if they're not, then don't listen to a thing I say. Don't. Because if we're not growing relational fruit here, why show up? I don't want to grow in numbers if we're not growing relationally. Gospel House Church, we will grow relationally. If that means I never preach another sermon up here again, then so be it. I don't care. If that means we've got to throw everything out and completely change the way we've been doing it, then that's what we do but we will grow relationally because that's how we measure gospel success. It's really interesting. Uh, when I first came into ministry, some of you know this, but I, I used to be an English teacher. I had my certification to be a high school English teacher. And I, I searched for like seven or eight years to try to find a full-time teaching job. And I could never find one. That was seven or eight years of doing resumes, job interviews, you know, all the stuff. And so the, the year, the year I finally got a full-time teaching job, that year, God called me into full-time ministry. It's like, are you kidding me, Jesus? I literally just got this thing, and now you're calling me out of it. But the one thing I told God, I said, Lord, I will do this. If this is really what you want me to do, I will do it. But I am never doing another resume again. <laughs> it sounds funny. But it's true. I am never filling out another job application. If you want to promote me, Jesus, if you want to advance me, if you want to find me a job, it is all on you because I'm done. And you know what? I broke that promise once and I didn't get the job. And here we are. (laughs) Right? But church, what if we did that? What if we said, God is going to promote me? Could he do it? Is the gospel enough? Do you think? Because God measures everything relationally. That's how he measures success. And when those relationships stop growing, he cuts them off. Doesn't he? 
Now listen, the Holy Spirit put this hard on my heart, so somebody needs to hear this this morning. You have been so busy mourning a lost relationship that God has cut away, that it's keeping you from moving forward. But God removed it intentionally. It hurts, but he did it so that you can bear more fruit. If that word was for you, if you're like, holy cow, you need to go home and read John 15, because that's where Jesus gives us that promise. Any branch that he prunes is so that you will bear more fruit. It feels like a loss. Lord knows, Jan and I have walked through this. We, we, we have a joke that this feels like it's our ministry. It's just loss over and over. We've watched best friends move away. Best friends go to other ministries. Best friends go, go, go. But guys, that's what the gospel does, right? It grows, and when that fruit is healthy, that fruit goes. It goes out, right? That's gospel growth. And it hurts. <laughs> Relationships are hard, aren't they? That's why we don't like it. That's why we would much rather grow in numbers, because numbers are easy to produce. We can follow marketing techniques and all that stuff. We can do that. But to grow relationships, that's hard. And relationships fail, and they falter, and it's messy. And a lot of times you're in the middle of a relationship, and it's kind of like, where the heck is this even going? I've been banging my head against this kid, and he's not anywhere closer to Jesus than he was on day one, right? And when we go through that, we ought to be patient. But to be patient, we have to have hope, right? And we've got to have a hope that anchors. And I tricked you. I told you there were three points to this sermon, but there's not. There's six. <laughs> I knew if I said there were six at the very beginning, you guys, out the door. Forget this. Jeremy can't even get through three points in an hour. We're out of here at six. So this last one has three points, but they are so important. Paul tells us this, don't lose heart. He tells us that it's God's power and not our own. And he tells us we've got to give up control. That's where we find our hope. First, don't lose heart. This could be the entire theme of chapter 4. If you read chapter 4, over and over and over again, Paul says, do not lose heart. And we need that reminder, don't we? Guys, it's hard to be a Christian. Jesus promises that. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't say, hey, it might be kind of tough. He promises this will be hard. But we as Christians, we tell Elam, our son, this. We do hard things, right? Christian, we do hard things. Jesus said to. So don't lose heart. We need that reminder, especially when it comes to bearing relationships. Don't lose heart. Keep going. Every step you take, don't lose heart. Paul says, therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that, which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Ladies and gentlemen, where is your anchor? If it is on the things of this world, the flesh, you will lose heart. This is why the world is so bad at suffering. This is why when we look at our current culture, because our anchor is in the things of this world. And the things of this world do not last. That's what Paul's telling us. They're temporary. They're fading. You know what happens for you sailors out there? You know what happens if you take a boat? Got your anchor, right? Pick up your anchor. There's a storm brewing. It's raging, and you throw that anchor into your boat. What happens? Not a darn thing, right? Nothing. The storm blows you wherever it wants because your anchor is in the boat. 
Yet we, as human beings, continue to anchor ourselves to things of this world. How do you get something so that you don't move in a storm? you got to throw the anchor out of the boat, right? Don't anchor to the things of this world. Well, I'm, I'm anchored to my wife. She'll never leave me. She's going to disappoint me. Happy Mother's Day, Jana. Turn it around. Jana, put your hope in your husband. He'll never leave you. But he's going to screw up plenty. Promise loves to remind me of that. You're my dad who makes mistakes. I have a dad who doesn't make mistakes. You're right, Promise. Elam's my favorite. Put your anchor in things that are not of this world. Because when you drop that anchor outside of your boat, boat, it cannot be touched. Your boat will not move when those storms hit. The storms will hit. The storms may hurt, but your boat won't move because your anchor is outside. Your anchor is safe. Hebrews tells us it's anchored within the veil, right? The veil is the holy of holies. The veil is the glory of God. That's where we drop our anchor. Paul continues and says, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6 tells us, Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Again, don't lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, those, or in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do not lose heart. It's not your gospel. Did you know that? It's not your gospel. Some of us are so afraid of preaching the gospel because it feels like a rejection of us, right? If I take this gospel to my friend or my coworker or whoever and they reject it, they're rejecting me. That hurts me. They disown me. But what's Paul say? Then stop preaching yourself, right? This is part of the problem, though. We as a church, we've swung the pendulum way over here to just tell them your testimony. Just give them your testimony, your, 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 your experience with Jesus, your testimony, your. Give them Jesus. Share your testimony, but your testimony should major in Jesus and minor in you, right? If you're scared to share Jesus, can I challenge you? You're sharing too much of yourself. It's his gospel. Share Jesus. Keep being obedient. And don't lose heart. God will make it grow. God will grow that relationship. God will bring that reconciliation. You just be obedient. That's all you've got to do. Because ultimately, it's not your power. Right? If you are hoping in your power, you will fail. We know this, Christian. This is another one. It's a, it's a spiritual principle, right? Well, as long as it's applied to spiritual things, no. It's not your power in any of it. It's God's power at work through you. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is why I don't like leadership stuff, y'all. What's all leadership training do? Teaches you to find your strengths. Has anybody ever taken a strengths finders test? Right? These, all these mega organizations, they do it in churches now. Lo and behold, why would they do that in churches, you ask? It's a great question. You should ask those churches because they're finding your adequacy. When God says, when the gospel says, the implications of the gospel say, it's not your adequacy, it's his power. He has made you adequate. 
He has given everything you need to be obedient in that exact moment. I, I get real funny about spiritual gifts because a lot of people tend to major in spiritual gifts, right? Well, I'm a prophet. Well, I speak in tongues. Well, I do, you know, whatever it is. God will equip you for whatever you need in that exact moment. Stop calling yourself a prophet. Just call yourself his child and run with him, right? Who cares what the spiritual gifts are? Just run after him. If he wants me to give a prophecy, I'll give a prophecy. If he wants me to speak in tongues, I'll speak in tongues. But I'm running after him. It's not about your strengths. It's about his strength. But to access this, we have to give up control, don't we? Paul tells us this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. He says, I love this, I love this, for the love of Christ controls us. Come on. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The Holy Spirit wants to know, does the love of Christ control you? And what, what is the love of Christ? How do we see the love of Christ? It's the gospel, right? The gospel shows us the love Jesus had for us. Does that love control you? Or are you still sitting behind the wheel? Jesus died for you. Live for him. Right? Paul tells us, uh, this is the passage we ended on in our reading today. But he gives us our anchor, the only anchor you will ever need. It says, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Guys, how do you get there? How do we get there with any of this? And the answer is really simple. You have to behold him. That veil has to come off, and the Holy Spirit's the only one who can take that veil away. And you've got to see Jesus. Take off the veil and behold him. Sit at his feet and behold him. And as you dwell with Jesus, as you abide in him, as you sit and wait with love with him, you will find yourself being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He said, I've said part of the trouble with these people is that they're morbidly occupied with themselves. They haven't learned that as Christians they should finish with self, deny self, take up their cross, and follow him. Leave yourself in his hands, utterly and absolutely, past, present, and future. Ah, yes, but why are they so morbidly occupied with themselves? The answer is, of course, that they are not sufficiently occupied with him. And that is the explanation of this condition. It is a failure to know him and his ways as we should know them. My dear friends, Gospel House, get this into you. My dear friends, if we only spent more of our time looking at him, we'd soon forget ourselves. You have come to the Christian life. Very well then, stop looking at yourself and begin to enjoy him. Gospel confidence is the strangest thing in the world. Gospel confidence stands before kings and emperors unfazed. 
more confident than anyone else in the world because the King King of kings and Lord of lords says you are his. Yet, gospel confidence is not ashamed to sit in the presence of the poor, to sit in the presence of the marginalized, to sit in the presence of sinners, and to be humbled by them. To say to somebody who's not even living for Jesus, man, I think you'd see Jesus more clearly than I do sometimes. That humility, because there is no concept of self at all in true gospel confidence. Church, let the love of Christ control you. Jesus gave his life for you. And the call of every true disciple starts there. That's the beginning of it all. Jesus died for you. Die to yourself and live for him. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.